HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hello, Greenhorns. This is Severin. It is Thursday, 2 o'clock. We are here. We are here. Today I am in Connecticut, and it's overcast but not raining, which is great because we just transplanted 2,000 tomatoes, and frankly, they might have gotten the blight as early as today. Well, that was our major paranoid fear, but we are no longer paranoid because it is spring and it is not raining. And I am thrilled today to be joined on the phone by my wonderful friend Judith Winfrey down in Georgia, near Atlanta. <laughs> Judith, are you there? Hi, Severin, I'm here. Happy to be here. Happy to have you here. Oh, nice <laughs> to hear your voice. Now, uh, Judith, Judith, um, will you mind please just introducing yourself and your various affiliations, and then we'll start unpacking those affiliations. Sure. Um, so my name is Judith Winfrey, and I am a farm partner uh, with my sweetheart Joe at a farm called Love is Love. Uh, we're right in the suburbs of Atlanta, Georgia, and we have about five acres under um, organic vegetable production. Uh, we also have a hundred or so laying hens, and that is the majority of what we're producing is eggs and vegetables. Um, and I do lots of work in the community. I'm a community organizer. I'm the leader of Slow Food Atlanta, and I am um, also working with the Wholesome Wave Foundation um, in, here in Georgia to double the value of um, nutrition assistance dollars spent at farmer's markets. I manage a farmer's market called the East Atlanta Village Farmer's Market, and do basically anything I can to get good food to as many people nearby as possible. This is what they call a food movement busybody. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think that's a good word for me. I was called inexhaustible in uh, the Atlanta Journal and Constitution last week, and I, I submitted a correction. I. I wanted them to know that I am actually often quite exhausted. It's exhausting in the spring, especially when there's just so much to do. Yeah. But, so, yeah, we've had a beautiful spring here. It's just been, it's really been encouraging because, 
you know, last fall we were flooded pretty badly, and um, it's been a nice rebound to have beautiful, cool weather and a little bit of rain, just the right amount. It's been great. So you had a nice, easy entry, and it didn't get blazing early hot. Exactly. We're still having 60-degree nights here, which is, which is a big deal for us in May. Now, let's talk a little bit about the flood. And, but before the flood, let's move back before the flood. Um, before there was a flood, you, didn't, you weren't even a farmer yet, and neither was Joe, and you were just sweethearts. Let's start there. Okay. <laughs> so um, we met working at a, a really great beer joint in Atlanta called the Brick Store Pub. Um, and I immediately fell in love with this man because he was the hardest working man I had ever seen. I was like, wow, he works really hard. Um, and that turned out to be a great thing for the profession that we found ourselves in. Um we got interested in food activism through Food Not Bombs. Um, we were, Joe especially was doing a lot of gleaning and cooking and taking food around. And then we started thinking that it would be nice to know how to actually produce the food. So Joe went to work on a farm. And from there, we just sort of, we fell in love with the meaning of the work and the importance of doing something with your hands that your heart could also be a part of. And um, the floodgates kind of opened from there. We, I started working for an organization called Georgia Organics that is doing sustainable agriculture advocacy in our state. And I was there when a farmer came in to the office and said, he was looking to retire, and he wanted somebody to manage the farm, and that was kind of our opportunity, and we, we seized it because we felt it was really important to prove that young people who don't own land can farm and can make a living doing it, and uh, we've been doing that for the last three years. So you were sitting there in the office at the right time, and then you pounced on the opportunity and moved out into, is it what we call it, exurbs of Atlanta? Yeah, well, I mean, that's really the suburb um, of Atlanta. It's a sprawling suburban community with strip malls and fast food restaurants and subdivisions everywhere, and we're really on what feels like the last little farm in the middle of subdivisions and malls. Um, And and the runoff of those subdivisions and malls, the the water runs off of those malls and those subdivisions, and uh, it affects the the way that the water moves across the land. Let's talk, maybe, tell us about the flood. All right. Well, the farm is bordered on one side by um, a body of water called the Anawake. It's a creek, but it's a largish creek, and uh, it's a tributary of the biggest river in Georgia, which is the Chattahoochee, and we are really just about a quarter of a mile from where the Anawake meets the Chattahoochee. So, in some beautiful bottomland. Um, so, in September, we had um, nearly 20 inches of rain, 
in 24 hours. Um, it was an amazing storm, and I think because we're in what people around here call a, a holler, just a little, a little dip between two hills, um, storm systems seem to stay right on top of us, and they certainly did that night. Um, it was a really crazy storm. It kept us up all night. We knew something bad was going was gonna to reveal itself in the morning, but we had no idea that we would wake up to pretty much our entire farm under about five feet of water, and not just water standing, but a current, a moving current that pulled down hundreds of trees and took um, all, most all of our topsoil with it. And yes, you're absolutely right. If if we hadn't been surrounded by all of these impervious surfaces, um, I, I don't think that we would have seen the extreme amount of flooding um, that we saw. The Chattahoochee came up uh, about 30 feet and stayed up for about a week. We didn't see our, our crops again for four days after that flood. Um, and when the water went down, we saw our topsoil was gone. There were golf balls everywhere because um, there's a golf course right up the river for, or right up the creek from us. And... Um, and then we had to figure out what to do. What What do you do when it was fall? It was September, like really the first day of fall. So all of our fall crops had just gone in, and we lost everything. Um, and so there we were with like no income and a giant mess to clean up and employees who needed the work, and we... We had to figure out what to do, Severin. So we kind of mobilized the community, and then we started thinking, oh, I bet there's other farmers that have been impacted, and there were, and it turned out there were about a dozen small farms in Georgia that had severe flooding and lost crops and animals, many lost livestock, and um, through Slow Food Atlanta and some the cooperation of Georgia Organics and a few other organizations, we were able to have a fundraiser to help everybody at least stabilize and get through the fall and winter, which was really cool. So that was basically a big community band-aid that you were able to to put on a big bleeding wood. It wasn't quite maybe big enough in a band-aid, but it was a community band-aid made possible by your history in the community and the relationships around food and probably was deeply encouraging, but probably you wouldn't have another Band-Aid if you needed it. No, probably not. And I will say that, you know, in the very beginning, one of the things I learned from the disaster that was really helpful and I will take forward um, wherever I go is you have to act really quickly when something like that happens. I mean, I you have to start documenting it and taking pictures and getting the message out immediately. Um, and there's some reticence to do that because people think, oh, well, some agency will come in and take care of everything. And there were definitely people who said, you know, FEMA's going to be there for you or other, the USDA is going to be there for you. And, and while that's True to some extent, they were there really, really slowly. We're still waiting on 
the assistance that the USDA offered, and it, it was not, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have gotten us through the fall and winter because of the timing, but even the amount was, it was not very much. So, yes, there was a big community band-aid, and it was incredibly helpful for a lot of people, but I don't know what will happen if there's another disaster because you do wonder, like, how, how much do people have to give and how willing are they to be there again and again? Because, as you know, <laughs> it feels like, there could be a disaster every year with a with a small farm. Well, and particularly when the weather's all wobbly and so many things are wobbly, <laughs> and everybody's yeah, like bursting themselves bone a little bit. That that in the in that in the context of that wobble, become you know becomes um, it becomes ever clearer why we need to have resilient, biologically diverse, diversified, structurally. Um, structurally sound farm businesses and farm communities because it's that structural integrity that will allow us to have the bounce we need to deal with, you know, you know the, the, the heartache that happens, if not yearly, then at least occasionally. Absolutely. It seems like, it seems like um, that something, there's something there to learn about. You know, when once, once we've allowed our, the ecosystem or the farmscape the kind of farm community ecosystem to get all fracturized and, you know, developed into strip malls that, that, that we don't only lose, you know, the clean, the clean, you know, view across the land and we don't only lose, you know, the density of culture of the kids in school all understanding themselves as farmers, but you also lose... Um, resiliency. Well, you, you lose resiliency, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it seems yeah. like you have to be particularly brave to, you know, knowing that, to say, okay, I, you know, we're working in a system that is right now deeply compromised, but we understand that and we're, we're working towards, you know, rebuilding it. And so that's why it's so wonderful to have someone as smart as you, as busybody as you, <laughs> with that insight. But what, what are you doing with that insight? Or, like, let's talk about the, how that, piece of sand in your in your oysters getting up getting a pearl around it well um oh that was a hard question no, <laughs> no it's a good question i mean to be honest with you a lot of so you know whenever anyone is faced with any kind of crisis you have to respond immediately and quickly and that's what i i was saying that that was a lesson learned that you have to do that and then then there's a period of time where you just kind of have to stabilize and and evaluate and decide how you're going to move forward. And really, it's like a recovery process. And to a great extent, I feel like that's still where we are. So that that seed is still germinating, so to speak. I'm not sure exactly what I have to offer from the experience, except that I've had the experience and that I certainly am happy to be a voice of reason when people say things like, well, that was a 500-year flood and it's not going to happen again for 500 years. I just don't know that I believe that, and I think it's important to be the person to say loudly anywhere I can, I'm 
I'm not sure. I don't think any of us really know what the climate is going to do anymore. So I'm not sure that things like 500-year floods are predictable for the next little while. And um, and it, I have found that in the community, we have become a resource um, for people who are going through their own crises. Um, you know, we had friends in North Georgia who were hit by a tornado in November, and I was the f- one of the first calls they made, and and it was it felt good to me to be able to leverage the terrible experience I had to help get them on the road to recovery that much sooner. And the same with some friends uh, in Nashville who were just flooded. Um, you know, they called. What 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 do we do? What is the first step? And it, it felt good to at least be able to say what I had learned and, and offer what experience I could. Um, and there was Judith with her flood club, ready to institutionalize <laughs> the mutual suffering of many people for the empowerment and emotional stability of all. <laughs> you and by the way, much. if you need another one for your flood club, um, Snow's Bend Farm in Alabama, uh-huh. uh, they just got really badly flooded, too. They're in the crook of the um, Black Warrior River. Yes. And uh, they could join the flood club. Oh yeah, well, they were some of the first cl- flood club members. I um, they were flooded several years ago. Um, I'm sorry to hear that they've been flooded again. Oh, that's Pretty is that a repercussion of everything that happened in Tennessee? Well, I was just down there. We were filming in. Alabama and in Mississippi, and we were driving, and uh, we were talking, and we were looking, and we were, this is about two months ago. This is right after we saw each other in D.C. So oh, that really? another flood? Mm-hmm. That's another flood. Holy moly. Dear, uh, dear radio listeners, this is Greenhorns Radio. We are talking about the Flood Club with Judith <laughs> Winfrey um, from Love is Love Farm in Georgia. She um, has other stories she could tell, but... Uh, the flood story is one that I think is important for us to all really hear because, uh, because, well, why is it important? It is important because it is reality, and um, our rosy cheeked protagonism and our ferocious need to feed uh, the people who we live near and our creative capitalism and our brave muscles are all well and good, but when the weather keeps wobbling, um, it's just something to know that you have to really um, have a lot of systems in place. And um, well, and one I guess of I can add to that just yeah, to say that, you know, here we were, and when we were flooded, it was our second year of farming. And as everybody who... Farms on a small scale, well, farms at all knows it takes a, a tremendous amount of stamina and fortitude and heart and courage to do to run a farm in the first place. So it kind of feels unfair when a disaster happens on top of that. Um, because by September you're already pretty tired. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so I think part of what's important about the story is just it, it never we weren't we were not we weren't prepared. We had 
we hadn't really even thought about what, what would we do if there was some huge disaster that we had to respond to. Um, because in a way, when you're farming, you, at least for us, I mean, part of what we're doing is ab- trying to rebuild a relationship with the earth um, for the people around us and for ourselves. And we feel like we're responding in a small way to disaster every day. So when this other huge disaster comes on, um, it's beyond overwhelming. And I, I don't want anyone to feel paranoid or afraid, but I do want to offer courage and, and, and the benefit of the experience that it, it can happen, create things that are crazier than even blight and cucumber beetles <laughs> can happen anytime. It happened anytime, and and we have, and that and this is an important thing for us to take into account and to remember why it's so important to go into this process of being a farmer with as much planning and preparation as you can, with a business plan that has room for mistakes and for drama and for um for, for disasters big and small, and with you know a real serious long term commitment to to addressing those issues as they inevitably show up. I think that, you know, when something serious happens, it reminds us all that, you know, how, how very serious, how very seriously we have to, you know, take this job that, we are, that we've chosen. Absolutely. But now there's other, there's other things also that we should learn about because, in fact, there's so much going on in Georgia um, that is strong, and there's such an incredible community around food that's growing down there, and um, new farmers starting up um, all the time. So maybe let's give, you know, we know about the Flood Club, but there's some other stuff happening in Georgia that's super positive, and I think people who are um, unfamiliar with the scene down in ATL and its surroundings uh-huh. would probably enjoy a little rundown. All right. Well, thank you, because as you know, one of one of my meta-missions is to make the Southeast as visible, um, you know, in the sustainable ag movement as our friends uh, in the Northeast and the West Coast seem to enjoy, um, because there is, in fact, a tremendous amount happening. We have... Um, we are certainly not as far along as other places, but in a way that makes it more exciting because we're growing and we're growing quickly. We're taking on new farmers and new farmland all of the time. And a lot of young farmers um, are moving in to family land, um, to um, other other farmers' land. There are Georgia is the third largest ag state in the country. A lot of people don't realize this. Um, and and there's a tremendous amount of farmland, and there's a lot of farmland in South Georgia that I, I kind of drool over because that's really where ag is happening, and and we're starting to see some movement and the development of, um, organic farms and small farms, are are, they're growing down there, and that's exciting. Um, we have, um, is there something? Will you specific? wait? Do this. Can I interrupt you for a second? Will yeah. you mind? Will you tell a little phrase about what mostly is growing in Georgia? Pines, peaches, what is it? Um, well, a lot of that ag, the, what makes us the third largest ag state in, Georgia, uh, in the country is chicken. 
there's a, there are a lot of chicken houses in Georgia. Um, we're also growing a tremendous amount of our, our big specialty crops are watermelon, sorghum, um, some corn. What's peaches that? And pecan. I heard, what I heard was peaches, pecans, pine, poultry, and shoot. That's why I wanted you to do it, but I didn't work. Oh, well, we lost it. Sorghum. We definitely grow a lot of sorghum. And peaches are not as big as they once were. Um, but, yes, we are growing a lot of peaches here. Oh, yeah, peanuts. That was it. That was the last one. Oh, yeah, we we don't have a lot of organic pe- uh, peanuts being produced, although there is an amazing farmer in uh, Screven, Georgia, uh, named Raylinda Walker, who produced the first crop of organic peanuts. She's growing on about just 40 acres down there. Um, there's so many amazing young farmers. Um, I don't know if there's somebody you want me to mention Specifically, if you had your your no, mind fixed on, I don't have my mind on anybody. I, I, there's wonderful. Um, there's the wonderful Jenny Jack farmers, who yeah. are. If those of you who don't know about mules, a Jenny is a. Wait a minute now. A Jenny is a girl donkey, not a girl mule. Right. And a Jack is a a male. Can you have a female mule? Yes, you can. <laughs> They're just going to be sterile. Oh, dear. This is what happens when we get all off topic. We get really <laughs> yeah. silly. So there's Chris and Jenny Jackson at the Jenny Jackson Farm in Pine Mountain, and they are amazing. We, um, Joe and I were lucky enough to partner with them for the last two years to just, for our CSA, um, and that was a real treat. Though now it's exciting, a, a huge development for them. Um, they are able to market everything they grow within 30 miles of their, their, their farm. So they don't have to come to the city anymore to sell, which has always been their goal, and we were all sort of surprised by how quickly they were able to meet it. So demand in, in more rural areas is growing too, which is exciting to see. Um, there's Paige at Serenby that is a really fabulous farmer, and and one of the things I like is that so many of the farmers that we know and we work with closely are working in different models. Not all of them are working on land they own. Um, Chris and Jenny are growing on her dad's land, and Paige is working for this development that wanted a farm as the centerpiece, as you know. Um, and I think, you know, if there's one issue that, I feel really passionately about right now, and I know you have done a lot of work on yourself, Severin, is land tenure and taking care of yourself as a young farmer on land that you don't own. It's imperative in the planning process and the working it out process to make sure that you have yourself protected so that you can't so that what you're working hard to build can't be taken away from you. Um, yeah, and land- actually, it's important. Um, I just wanted to echo that and and tell everybody because on September 29th, 
um, we're having a, a stakeholder forum um, in the Hudson Valley, and the, and the title of it is it's called Land Access for Beginning Farmers in the Hudson Valley. And um, we've invited Judith to come and speak. Um, and it's funded, actually, by Cooperative Extension, because Cooperative Extension knows that this is a really big sticking point, is, um, you know, when there's eagerness on both sides at the beginning to, to get involved in the farm startup, that's one thing. But then getting security in that, in that relationship, legal security for both parties, um, and, and frankly, kind of communication uh, stability, like having a harmonious long-term relationship. That's something that is um, really integral to that equation and difficult to communicate, especially, you know, when you're young and prickly and punky and feeling all these yeoman feelings. Um, that was, those feelings are not necessarily so harmonious in every case with, um, with, the, with, the, with the value set that the landowner and a landowner who may not be familiar with agriculture is going to bring to that equation. Uh, Absolutely. That or even if they go ahead, sorry. Even if they are familiar with agriculture, it's farming is so personal. Um, and there really are many ways to do it and do it right. Um, and it you may not agree on the right way to do it even if they do have agricultural experience and you need to be prepared for how to work out those kinds of um, disagreements. Um, I've found through my experience that, um, that farming someone's land is, is way more personal than I ever would have expected it to be, that, that in a way you have, um, you're developing a relationship with the farm and you're developing a relationship with, I, I liken the landowner to like the parent of the farm or the, the mother of the farm, you know? It's like you have, to, you have to be respectful of the people who own the farm and respectful of the farm, and you have to figure out a way to be in that sort of triangulated relationship that works for you too. Um, and it's not as simple as one would think it, it, there are many complications and there are many nuances and it takes a tremendous amount of sensitivity and patience and I would say as much as you can think through in the beginning, um, the better off you'll be. And, you know, this is, this is coming from Judith, who's one of the, the most bright sunshine, pure intention ladies that I know. And she <laughs> so thoughtful about these things, and so it's really wonderful to see, hear you kind of problematize um, a process, because, you know, ultimately, uh, the process of converting our agricultural system over to a more sustainable system with more stakeholders and more producers and more vendors and more processors and more farms, um, it's a process, and, the, and that process is complicated, and as you're explaining, is it takes really intense focus on the part of a whole um, group of different players, each of whom coming into that set of relationships with a different background. And, and, here, and here, you're also making this point, just a different style and a different set of prejudices because 
so much of a farm really is it's the farm as an institution is just kind of built up of 20 years of instinct that that instinct translates into how things are done and how things look and how the trees are pruned and what kinds of spacings and what kinds of rotations and how we put back up our tractor and all these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and you wouldn't necessarily think going in that that would be complicated, but as you found, as many, um, frankly, many people are finding, having, um, figuring that out is quite a learning experience. What would make it easier, Judith? That's a question. I think... What would make it easier is, A, the recognition that that is going to happen. I know I keep falling back on this metaphor of relationship, but it really is. It is relationship, and it's just like falling in love. You know, everything seems great in the beginning, and then, you know, one day you're like, wow, I didn't realize that they talk that much in the morning or whatever the thing is. And so these little pet peeves start to develop, and so if people have reasonable human relationship skills, it's helpful. That makes it easier. But I think also going into it knowing that, knowing that there will be a day where there will be a conflict about something that you didn't expect and you need to know how to be prepared for it and asking as many questions as possible up front. I mean, what what I've thought about doing and, and maybe someday when I have a little time I will do is a sort of checklist that will allow to farmers who are thinking of working together in any way, but particularly in a land owner, land tenant kind of a way, some sort of checklist that will allow them to have a guided conversation about what their values are, what they like, what they don't like, to to, to help people think through all of those little details. Um, it's. I think it would be incredibly important to have that conversation in the beginning, and it would make everything easier. Yeah, I think we got to we got to figure out how to give you space to do that checklist, Judith. Well, it's all still <laughs> fresh in your mind. Maybe we're going to have to ca- kidnap you up north for a weekend and give you some nice tea and a quiet My corner and vacation. <laughs> we'll just take you a little. We'll put you in a sail. Now, okay, so this is good, and we basically don't have any more time to talk about this, but I think we may have to come back to Judith because there's there's so, like, the next chapter, like, we're at the question, and we've kind of, like, grown our horns out, you know, kind of antagonizing and thinking and problematizing and analyzing it, and now we have to hitch our horns to the plow and figure out where the furrow lies and, and, and how to best apply our lesson to future-making. And so what I want to say is maybe we can schedule to do that next session in a couple months when the formative spring thinking phase um, has developed into a small bud, and then we can start developing that fruit. That was a lot of metaphors. Woo! But it's okay. Um, So that's where we're going to leave it. Is there any announcements that you have about what people who um, are interested in anything you said could tune into or um, where the most uh, resources lie that you're excited about sharing with the world? Well, um, you know, I think 
you've done a tremendously good job of pulling, assimilating information for everybody. So I would send them to your website um, for farming information, especially for young and beginning farmers. But um, I am really passionate about this Wholesome Wave project right now, and I do want to encourage people to look into the Wholesome Wave Foundation and see if there are markets in their area that are doubling um, EBT and WIC dollars, uh, because I think it's a powerful program, and it's really sort of addressing the crux of food access and this idea that this is an elitist movement, and um, I'm really proud of the work they're doing, so I would like to put a little plug in for them. Okay, good plug. Good people, and uh, and for, you know this is a plug. We're talking about the plugging the hole of this problem, leaky leaky problem of our system, which is that people who cannot afford fresh ac- food fresh food access um, are people who really need fresh food access, and we don't have the political frameworks quite yet in place to get them that access. But if no. we prove that it's possible to Im- improve diet through these kinds of WIC, uh, fresh fruit through WIC and through um, food stamps, EBT cards, um, then we can model the solution. And then in the next uh, farm bill and as the programs are evolving within the, within the government itself, um, they can just redesign the program to fix the problem. Is that accurate? Exactly. exactly. That's what they can do. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we can do. We'll have to do it together. And, Judah, thank you for your patience. As I got a little rambly, but uh, thank you all for your listening. Thank you, uh, Judith. Thank you. Thank you for uh, having me. Oh, it's really good. I'm so looking forward to seeing you in September. Uh, thank you to our sponsors, um, to Hearst Family Ranch out in California and HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Okay. Mm-hmm. See you next Bye. Bye.